Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. One of the things that distinguishes Islam as a religion, but also as a uh, body of study and um, an academic and scholastic pursuit is one of our sciences that w- is called usul al-fiqh and and many people have heard me make reference you know previously to this uh, to this science and the reason is that usul al-fiqh is at the time when islam appeared in the world of you know religions and the world of thought and things like that it was one of the inventions that Islam came up with, that the Muslim scholars invented. This science of how you interpret these, these texts, in a sense, how you think. Uh, a science of first principles. So I, the whole series is really about principles. And the reason uh, I'm interested in that is that one of the, the things that I benefited from when I studied is I was able to study this science quite extensively and it influenced me obviously as you can tell tremendously and it really is very fascinating and we've made mention to it in the past and in a previous uh, episode we talked a little bit about uh, usul al-fiqh and what are some of the concepts of how the jurist theoretically thinks you know how do we know what is authority in religion and how do we know that it's it's uh, authenticated etc uh, today I want to talk a li- about the same subject but from a slightly different point of view vis-a-vis what usul al-fiqh uh, or the you know uh, methodology of jurisprudence as sometimes it's translated what it means today 
This might seem like a strange conversation, but hopefully at the end you will see that it, it makes a lot of sense. Or at least its importance will make sense. I mean, this is a very highly... Um, this is a field of high expertise. I mean, it requires a lot of requisite understanding and knowledge of different branches of the Islamic sciences to understand. So we're, we're going to talk about it. We're not necessarily going to talk as if we're inside it. So in the beginning, what would be appropriate to say is, of course, we would all agree that the Qur'an is the access around which revolves all of our you know, personal, devotional uh, acts, but also it's the access around which revolves all of the Islamic sciences. So any Islamic science that we have, whether it be grammar and different linguistic sciences, whether it be the different sciences of hadith, whether it be the science of theology or its branches, anything that you can think of that you would study at a seminary, let's say, at a, at a formal Islamic seminary, all of those sciences were developed with one goal, which is to understand the Qur'an. So to understand the Qur'an, you need to know the language. But of course, the language is not just one thing. You need to understand the vocabulary. So we have dictionaries, the science of dictionaries for people that are into that. You need to understand how the, the, the verbs conjugate in the Arabic languages. So we have the science of morphology, of sarf. You need to know how the words fit together in a sentence. That's the science of grammar or nahu, so on and so forth. So just from one idea of language, you need to know all of these things. So the early generations, you know, when they, took, when they took charge of the faith and they took charge of the community, you know, they were obsessed, I mean, really obsessed with all of these things. Even calligraphy, the art of calligraphy to beautify the writing of the Qur'an. And of course, as is natural, as time progresses, these uh, disciplines become their own thing. They, they have their own areas of expertise. And, and you know, you, you can get very, very deep into it and lost in the, you know, the ocean of those, of those sciences. But if you take a step back, it's helpful that we remind ourselves that all of this was done really just to understand the Qur'an. And in the process of doing that, there are three areas that became important that sort of around which it emerges this science of usul al-fiqh or the science of the methodology of interpretation. One is what are the sources that we are going to use for our research? And of course anybody would, would say, okay, well the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And as I said previously, while we, we take that for granted now, there was a time where that actually had to be debated and established. That that was, okay, that's what we're searching in, and that's what defines Islam. And that's important, and I'll tell you why, it's just as like a tangent. There is this, um, I don't want to say it's a movement, but there is this pattern of thinking that exists in some Muslim circles today usually from the academy, which as many know, is I'm not a big fan of, that if anything happens in the Muslim world by Muslim people, it's somehow Islam. But yes, maybe culturally, if there, there can be Muslim you know, fashion designers, there can be you know, Islamic architecture, things like that. But when we talk within the subject matter or the science of interpreting what the Qur'an and the Sunnah mean, no, that stuff is not Islam. If somebody out there is a Muslim in, in you know, New Delhi or Cairo or Istanbul or Damascus or wherever, you know, Fez, Makna, anywhere in the Muslim majority world, and does something, we don't say, okay, then that becomes, that's an Islamic thing. 
No, that's not what Islam is. That's why we keep saying ISIS and al qaeda all these people, that's not Islam. That's something else. That's like Mik Islam or Islam light or Islam minus or Islam zero or something. It's not real Islam. Why? Because of this question that we come back to. You see, sometimes we laugh at these things, but now we see why, we, why we've inherited it, is that we need to remind ourselves, what is it that we use to define Islam? It's the Qur'an and the Sunnah. That's what we're looking at. Now there can be other things, there can be cultural expressions, but that's a different subject. But that's not going to have any necessarily authority in how we derive rulings. So the first thing, and that's just a little tangent, but the first thing is, what are the sources of our religion? We say the Qur'an and Sunnah, we kind of get that. But how then, the second question is, how then can we research and understand and interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah? That's really important. You know, do we use, um, uh, you know, political theory, modern political theory to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah? Uh, do we use uh, modern psychology to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah? Of course, we use the language sciences of you know grammar and morphology, etc. We, we we agree to that, but this is a question that needs to be had again. And, and this is what we're going to talk about the bulk today. So we'll come back to that. So how is it that we look at the Qur'an and Sunnah and interpret? And then number three, what are the conditions for the person, for the researcher themselves? So when you come and you open the Qur'an and you open the canon of the hadith and you look at it, you are bringing yourself to the table. So you are a bias. Of course, in anything. that you, you, you There is your own bias in reading it. So what then are the conditions? Can anybody open the Qur'an and the Sunnah, uh, Qur'an and the canon of Hadith and just start interpreting away? Technically no. But unfortunately that's, what ha that's how we got into this mess. That many people did that for the last you know, two, three hundred years. And that's how we have all of these uh, fake Islams out there. But because they've just sort of gone on and on and on and they've, no one is, uh, we haven't checked them loud enough, now people think that that's like an established way of looking at Islam. So we have all of this confusion. So that's why this topic is, I mean, it might seem a little abstract, but you can kind of hopefully glimpse uh, why it's important. So the three areas are what are we researching or what forms our religion, the Qur'an and the Sunnah, how do we approach and research and interpret? And then what are the conditions upon the one that is approaching? These three questions, and these are very high level questions, or very high level theoretical questions, around which form this entire science of usul al-fiqh. The methodology of jurisprudence. And this is really the defining characteristics of Islam, of, of academic scholastic Islam, in both its Sunni and Shia expression. So... When we talk about orthodoxy, or what is true Islam, or right Islam, we are essentially talking about usuli Islam. In, in other words, an Islam that is alive, that is current, that is constantly interpreting, and all of this is what we mean by the word ijtihad. That's what we mean by the word of approaching the primary sources and interpreting. So we've talked about it before, why am I talking about it again? When I studied, or if anyone was, you know, spent a few years studying, you know, the Sharia and these type of sciences, 
you tend to read books that are old. You know, you tend to read books that were written several hundred years ago. And it's like a pride thing, you know, like I read this, you know, commentary by Imam al-Nawawi. You know, oh, I, I read and understood this legal work by Imam al-Ghazali. Because the, the older the book is, the more rich the academic and the scholastic discourse is, the more rich the language is. So as a student, if you can read and understand that, it's sort of like, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm doing something right because now I can understand. I don't need to read the modern summary. I can read the original work. But in that process, and that's normal in, 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 in when you study these you know, sciences and disciplines, you, know, you read the, 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 the great figures of the past. But one of the things that you notice is that really from the time of the Sahaba to maybe uh, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, life was kind of the same. Life was agrarian, and we're talking about the whole expansiveness of the Muslim world. Now, the many things happened. Many people r rose and fell and, you know, Genghis Khan and all of these khilafas and all, yeah, all of that stuff happened historically. But I'm talking about the matter of life, like how you live life. You know, when you read about wudu, people still had to go outside, you know, draw water from the well, uh, squat down and make wudu. Which is why when you read a, a medieval book of law and you talk about how the wudu is done, there's no concept that you're standing at a sink with running water. Maybe, you know, you're, you're wealthy and you have like an aqueduct that feeds water into your palace or like you're the sultan or something. Or maybe you go to the big mosque and there's running water, but still you're, you're squatting down. If you've, you've seen any of these medieval mosques, pictures of them, and there's like a big fountain in the middle of the mosque, you still have to go, you know, roll up your, your garment, squat down and make wudu. And that was pretty much how it was from the time of the Sahaba until you know, around the, the early 1800s. Banking. Well, there was really no banks, but finance. It was the same. The Sahaba, the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba talked about gold and silver, the dinar and the dirham. And uh, the scholars of the 1700s and the 1800s, they also talked about the dinar and the dirham. You know, gold and silver was still like what currency, how you buy and you sell things. What people ate. Um, if you needed to travel, so people that needed to travel for Hajj, for example, which is like the big Muslim journey, it was pretty much the same. You need some kind of riding animal, uh, or you're walking. And you have many, many stories of people that have walked to Hajj. Now, you're like, that's, that's insane. Yeah, I got to fit Hajj in, in between the two meetings, and in, in between my semester, and be, you know, I want to fly and fly out. But for people that went to Hajj, that was almost like a year commitment, or a half year commitment at least, because you had to go, and you couldn't always be riding. But with the Industrial Revolution, and the increase of technologies, as this came to the Muslim world, many things changed. So our communication with each other has changed, our modes of transportation has changed, finance has changed, education has changed, the whole colonial experience that was sort of thrust upon much of the Muslim world definitely had an impact. So there are all of these new things that happened from like the 1800s till now. Now, even, and what I'm saying is, is even the case in, you know, in other parts of the world. This is not just unique to the Muslim world, but this rapid advance of technology, of communication, of industry, of um, uh, all of these other sectors is something that the whole world experienced. 
So now, when I read the works of Imam al-Ghazali or the works of Imam Abu Hanifa or the works of Imam al-Shaf or whatever, and I bring that into the here and now today, the here and now today has fundamentally shifted from what they understood as commerce, as trade, as just, you know, day-to-day life. And part of the job of the jurist, part of the job of the faqih, in interpreting the Qur'an and the sunnah, is to bring the Qur'an and the sunnah into the here and now. But the here and now has changed, and is changing, and will continue to change rapidly. I mean, my children, they comment about things that I had when I was growing up, and they make me feel ancient. You know, but I mean, I'm not that old, so in their eyes, it's changing even faster. You know, almost on a year-to-year basis. Whereas maybe people that are older, you kind of remember, you know, a cordless phone was like the big deal in the house. Like now we have a cordless phone, you have to, you know, open the antenna, you know, like X number of feet, and you'd see how far away you can get from the base. And, you know, that was like technology. But now we have cell phones. You know, I don't even know people that have a home phone anymore. Or, or use it at least. Or many people don't even know what their home phone number is because it's all just the, the cell phone. But now, for us, the cell phone is normal or a smartphone, whatever. But 10, 15 years, it might, we might be somewhere else. It might be an implant or whatever the case may be. So you see there's this rapid change. Now, the, faqih, the faqih's job now is even more challenging. Because when I look to my usul al-fiqh, this thing that we're talking about, of how I understand the Qur'an and the sunnah, the tools that I had in answering those questions were based on a reality that has now fundamentally shifted. So in the West, and not everything is the East and the West, but let's just say the West in general, you know, Europe, North America, our, you know, the culture that we predominantly, people listening predominantly live in most of the time, they had their own challenges of interpreting what these changes mean for their own values. So modern psychology, uh, modern economics, economic theory, political science, uh, construct of government, uh, organizations, administrations, you know, the science of running an organization, the science of administering and managing many people. No medieval faqih is worried about that. They're not worried about about you know, uh, employee benefits and uh, open desk model versus collaboration, uh, distributed company. They're not thinking of those things, not because they were dumb, because that didn't exist at the time. They were current for their time. So in the West, we have all of these social sciences. You can go to the university now and study psychology. You can go to the university now and study political science, for example. But all of those disciplines emerged and kind of left Islam behind. So when Muslims study these subjects now, they study it from a paradigm that's, that's, that's almost entirely foreign to the paradigm of Islam. And this does not mean, this is not about good and bad. We're just describing the situation. So for example, if, if somebody comes and asks uh, an usuli or a faqih or, or even asks us as we're listening to this series about what Islam would say about gender, these gender issues or transgender or um, you know, gender fluidity or, or many, and, and I don't want to talk about it because I don't know enough about it but I'm using this as an example that we would all know 
we would essentially be confined with how these subjects have been defined and have been talked about according to certain disciplines that are quote-unquote not Islamic. That doesn't mean that they're bad. But those other disciplines are based on a paradigm that is not the paradigm of Islam. Whereas before this, this advent, you know, before a few hundred years ago, when the fuqaha were pre- presented with, at that time, challenges, they responded to those challenges with what was appropriate at that time. Uh, like one of the most traumatic things to ever happen in the history of Islam was the Mongol invasion. I mean, the, the most traumatic thing to happen in the world, you know, not just, the, but, but, but the large parts of the Muslim world were swept. And the, the, the ulama and the thought leaders, the Muslim thought leaders at the time, they responded to these things. They helped the community get through these things. What does it mean to be invaded? What does it mean to lose land? What does it mean that our libraries are burned? You know, what does it mean that, we're sub, that we could be subjugated? Uh, how do the Muslims come together despite their differences of, you know, political differences at the time to ward off the, the Mongol engagement, uh, Mongol invasion? And the, the, the interesting thing about that whole episode is uh, Genghis Khan's, you know, after he passed and he had all of these sons that, that carved up what he had left them, the ones that came to the Muslim world within two, three generations, they themselves became Muslim. So even though it was like a huge shock, Islam was like this huge sponge that like just took it in and now it just became part of the Muslim world. So there was an effective mechanism of dealing with that or the, or the loss of Spain, which is an equally traumatic experience for the Muslim world. When you read about what the ulama, how they, they talked about, you know, there were Muslims uh, that had to uh, hide their Islam. These moriscos, you know, they had to pray literally in the in underground. And many of those um, families lasted even up until till today. You'll find families that they will trace their lineage to some kind of Muslim. Maybe Islam had been lost or they have some sort of uh, names or maybe they just have a Quran at home or something like that. But that was pretty traumatic. And Islam dealt with it, meaning the ulama dealt with it at that time with what was appropriate. So now this is our challenge. And again, this is not about good and bad. It's not about right and wrong. It said that Islam, we have a, our own paradigm. Again, going back to what we said in the beginning, the axis of our paradigm is the Qur'an. So we have Qur'anic principles. The Qur'an defines for us what equity means. The Qur'an defines for us, for example, the difference between genders, male and female. The Qur'an defines for us the nature of marriage, for example. Which is not to procreate. I hear a lot of Muslims say, oh, the reason we marry in Islam is to procreate. This is a, uh, a Judeo-Christian, maybe you can say, ideal. This is not an Islamic ideal. The reason we get married is to have comfort in a, in a mate. Because Allah tells us that from His signs, He created us, our soulmates, from ourselves. So one of the things that's happening in the world of usul al-fiqh, now, one of the challenges that's happening, it's a challenge, but it's also very exciting, is that, and this is actually almost very entrepreneurial in a way, that a lot of these leading thinkers are now thinking about these topics. When people come and ask me a question, uh, like, um, uh, I made wudu like this, is, and that's, those are like easy questions, even though you have to study and memorize those things. The questions that I get really worried about are the questions which I, I know the answer, 
But I know hearing the answer will sound very medieval and barbaric to the one asking the question. Those are the, those are the questions that I always try to... Sometimes I even say, I know this will sound... I, I will say things like, I know this does not make sense with our liberal sensibilities, for example. Because, the, because it's religion. Remember, we didn't make this up. We didn't make up Islam. We believe that this was revealed and we're trying to in, interpret and, and, and comply to it. That's the whole idea of submission. But because some of these social issues, many of them are social issues, but not all, have been discussed for several centuries now, based on another paradigm, it's almost impossible for us to just come in and talk about it without this background. And because Usul al-Fiqh is, in, is concerned with understanding the Qur'an and Sunnah, but also making sense of the Qur'an and Sunnah today, we have to make even more of an effort to understand today before we understand the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And I, and I hope that makes sense. So let me end by a very quick example uh, to give you just a flavor of what, what I mean. I made reference a little while ago to economics, banking, etc. So if you look at any you know, regular manual of Islamic law, uh, and you talk and you look in the section of business transactions and money and this and that, riba, all of that kind of stuff. It's all based on the concept that the currency that is being used is actual gold and silver coins. That people are walking around in their pockets with gold and silver coins or they have like a little satchel that has gold and silver. And that's what was in the pocket of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, he had gold and silver coins that had crosses on them. Because the, the, the dirham uh, and the dinar, uh, those are words, those are Arabized words from the Greek, drachma and things like that. So at the time, at the advent, the very beginning of Islam, that's what the currency that was being used. Before Muslims started minting their own coins, those are the coins that were in the Prophet's pocket. So it, when you learn law, if you don't spend enough time, you study the summary of the law. So you just learn the rules, the do's and the don'ts. So you learn that riba, this thing called riba is haram. And riba is, you know, I take a gold coin from you and then I have to pay it back too. That's riba. And then you, you might, if it's a little bit more detailed, you might have a couple of hadith and a couple of verses that support this. But the modern banking system, well, the modern currency right now is not gold and silver, it's fiat currency, which is a term that simply means paper money. And paper money has no intrinsic value, nor is the uh, paper money backed by gold and silver. But that's, that what I just said is not stated in the books of fiqh. You have to know that. You have to draw that, you have to make that bridge. And you have to, uh, then the question becomes, okay, is the paper money that we have today? And you know, now, I mean, how many people even have paper money in their pockets anyway? It's all digital, right? It's all like uh, online and things like that. Does the paper money that we use today, is this money equivalent to the dinar and the dirham? Well, no, it's not. So is there riba in the paper money? That's the sequence of thinking. So this modern change in just this little issue that we're talking about finance, but it has huge implications, it needs to be thought of in light of modern realities. And we will not be able to understand the modern realities. This is for... Uh, people that are, are going to take this uh, forward and study these things, 
unless we study the underpinning values and principles and concept behind these systems that we are using whether they be financial systems whether they be social systems whether they be you know nation states these type of things so when somebody comes and asks us asks me about banking and interest in the bank i say no the interest in the bank is not riba it's just interest it's something separate I know how it looks and smells like riba. If you read, I give one and then I get two. And, but you have to go through the mental process of understanding that this is not gold and silver, nor is the money backed by gold and silver. And the, the fuqaha of the previous generation, and it's an issue of, of scholarly debate, no doubt, but one of the opinions, especially in the late Shafi'i school, that paper money has no riba in, in it. But when I say this to people, even though I've answered this question in this community maybe no less than 70 times over the last five years, people still challenge. Now, I'm not saying you have to listen to me, and I mean, that would make my life easier, but that's, I, I feel free to, to disagree, that's fine. But the reason I get challenged is that they're like, that doesn't smell right. Because we have been told for the last 50 years, 30 years, that interest is haram because interest is riba. And this is one of the big challenges that we have. Especially for here, I'm speaking to people that study the sharia, study fiqh and things like that. They have to up their game. And it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough. We have to really up our game. Because we have to understand what it is that we're living in, how we're living, when we're living, why we're living, and all of the systems that we use and that we have. And we have to also be brave enough to acknowledge that some of it's not going to be compatible. With, with sensitive issues like gender and sexuality and things like that, there are some things that are not going to be compatible. However, we at least need to be given the space to articulate our position based on certain values and principles. But that we have not been given the chance to. We're sort of, we're playing catch up. So anyway, this idea of updating, reviving, advancing, adding to usul al-fiqh, which is what this, this episode is about, is very important that we, that we keep in mind. So I just wanted to give a cursory sweep over it, hopefully you've, you found some value in it and it made some sense. Um, but at least the example of the money and the banking might make what I'm trying to say a little bit more tangible. Wallahu a'lam.